This morning we're going to uh, pick up in verse number 12, cover the, the text from verse 12 through verse number 17. This morning we're going to see, uh, John is going to identify some of the sources of the temptations that we face in life. He's going to give us insight on how to overcome those temptations, but before he does that, he shares with us a word of encouragement. And so, I'll follow along there from verses 12 through 14. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. Because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, now real quick, I forgot to give some instructions. Hey Larry, I've got the control of the screen from here. Sorry about that. Uh, everyone else, now back to the message. Uh, right from the very beginning, John's offering a, a great word of encouragement to believers. But you'll notice that in the, his encouraging, he identifies three different groups of individuals. And so he talks uh, to the little children, to the fathers, and then to the young men. Now some people believe uh, the reason why he does this is because he's breaking it down uh, uh, based upon chronological age. Others believe that he is addressing spiritual age. Uh, Many people find that both of those uh, interpretations are inconsistent uh, because the problem becomes when you look at how father is introduced into the equation. It's out of order. He goes little children and then father and then young men. So, so what is happening here? And then in light of other places in his letter, where uh, John refers to the listener or to the readers as little children, and that's all he refers to them as. He does that at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse number 1. He does it again in chapter 2, verse number 8. In chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 21. It's all a reference to little children. So as a result of all of this, a lot of biblical scholars uh, tend to believe, and I, I tend to hold this belief as well, that each one of these references to uh, a particular category is an, actually an attempt to be an occlusion of all who believe. What's said to one is inclusive of all. Now this type of interpretation for that has some biblical support. I'm not just uh, making things up here this morning. You see this play out in other places in Scripture. Often, uh, the biblical authors will contrast age, saying young and old, in, a, in an effort to address, yes, it's young and it's old, and it's everybody in between. You'll see it in Acts chapter 2. Uh, there, Luke is making a quote that goes back to Joel chapter 2, and specifically Joel chapter 2, verse number 28. And there he's quoting the prophet when he spoke of old men dreaming dreams and young men uh, having visions. He's doing so in a way, it's a pro poetic way, 
of saying that dreams and visions will be experienced by young and by old and by everyone in between. And so if this principle of interpretation holds up to our text, and I believe that it does, then verses 12 through 14, although it's identified a specific category, is actually applicable to all those who believe. And so John is trying to give them a great word of encouragement here at the beginning of this next section. And the most fundamental word of encouragement that he's offering to the believers is a reminder to them that in their past they have been forgiven and that forgiveness holds true in their lives today. And so John is reassuring his listeners of their status with God. Their sins have been forgiven, they know the Father, and they have overcome the evil one. And so John then moves from emphasizing the assurance that they have with their relationship with God to exhorting them on how to deal with a world that hates them and a world that is opposed to our Father. So that's why he links once again the very important truth that I cannot overemphasize enough in this message series. And that's the truth that belief and behavior are linked together. And he continues, look at verse 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. John begins this section by giving us the command to not love the world. Do not love the world. Now this command to not love the world, nor to love anything in the world, could seem strange in light of other texts in Scripture. For instance, consider John 3.16. John 3.16 very clearly and very beautifully states that God loves the world. And here, John is telling us not to love the world. So what's happening here? What's going on? How can John 3.16 declare that God's love for the world, and then John tell us not to love the world or anything in the world? And we have to understand that when you see the world, the word world used in the New Testament, there are at least three different interpretations for that word. Three different applications to that word. Sometimes when you see the word world being used, it's talking about the physical world in which we live in. It's a reference to earth. We see this in places like Acts chapter 17, verse number 24. says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So here we're talking about world as the physical earth, right? So sometimes the word is used to describe the physical world in which we live. Sometimes that word is used to describe the human world or mankind. Back to John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. World there is in a reference to mankind. 
Now, there are some places in Scripture that you'll see the word world used, and it's actually being used to reference both physical world, and in the same verse, it's being used uh, to um, reference the human world. And in fact, in John chapter 1, verse number 10, it says, He was in the world, so he was in or on the earth, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So it's talking about the physical world and the human world all in one reference. Now, I say all that to say this. The, the warning that we have uh, about do not love the world in, in, in this context is not talking about the earth. It's not talking about mankind. The world that's being referenced to here is the invisible spiritual system that is opposed to God. It's the invisible spiritual system that is in opposition to our Father. We often use the word world in the sense of systems in our daily conversations. You know, somebody might uh, break in on the news with breaking news from the world of sports. Well, sports isn't another planet out there somewhere. It's its own system. It has its own organized things and, and, and agendas. It's, it has its own set of ideas, people, activities, purposes. There's the world of sports. We use that, that language for the world of finance or the world of politics. And so, not individual planets, just individual operating systems that are at play today. And so the, the world that John is referring to is Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ because he stands in opposition to, to God and, and to Christ. And so this verse is telling us that we cannot love the world the, 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 the way the Satan opposes God. Uh, we cannot pursue that, that life or that, that those temptations. We cannot love the world and the things that are in opposition to the kingdom of God and still claim that we love God and are standing true to Him because those are contrary things and they cannot exist at the same time. So either we love God and we are radically pursuing the kingdom of God or we fail to love God and we're pursuing the kingdom that is opposed to God. Go back to verse number 15. It says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The absolute nature of this verse is striking. And it really deserves reflection from us. The kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of this world. Uh, those two worlds, those two systems, will never coexist peacefully. So to, to pledge allegiance to one side is ultimately to declare opposition to the other. So it's either we're pursuing the kingdom of God and, and, and striving to live our lives in accordance to His word and His will, or we're not. And when we're not, we're actually standing against what His Word has to say and what His will would be in our lives. When you look at verse number 16, he goes on to say, For all that is in the world, then he lists the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
He said, this is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here he points out the world's systems. He, he points out the, the three devices that Satan uses to, to entice and to trap believers to, to, to get stumbled up into his operating system, not the operating system of our Father. And those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, the boastful pride of life. Now, I'm reading out of the, the New American Standard, and it uses the term lust, uh, depending on your translation. I believe the ESV has it as the desires, perhaps. Yeah, lust and the desires are used interchangeably here. I want you to understand that in the Greek text, that word is basically a neutral term which means it is uh, neither good nor bad. It is neutral. So think about that. The word lust or the word desire could be either a negative or a positive in life. It's actually, in Scripture, that word is used in, uh, in a positive sense and it's used in a negative sense. I'll give you the positive first. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 17 says, But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. It's the same word that's being used. That, that lust, that great desire. Here's a positive thing. It is good to, to have a desire to be reunited with those that we care for, those that we love. But used negatively, like in Romans chapter 1, Verse number 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, or uh, your translation might say, the desires of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dis dishonored among them. So the, the word in and of itself is neither positive or negative. It is a neutral term. What determines whether it's positive or negative, it is how it gets played out. Or, or, or what, what's the end result? And so, while desires can be neutral, then how those desires get carried out is what makes all the difference in our lives. So, so let's begin with the first one. The first one says the lust of the flesh, or, or the cravings of sinful man. Uh, the, the lust or the desires of our flesh. This uh, refers to the tendency of people to fulfill natural desires in a manner in which God never approved of. It's taking the natural desires that are neither bad or good uh, and, and trying to fulfill those desires in a way that is opposed to how God would want us to fulfill those desires. And some of you have a, a glossy look over your face. Let me try to help you understand what I'm saying. God has given us certain desires and these desires could be considered neutral. God has given us desires like hunger, thirst, weariness, and actually the desire for sex. Uh, those are neutral desires. Those desires are not in and of themselves necessarily evil or, or, or bad. There's nothing wrong with eating, drinking. There's nothing wrong with rest. And there's nothing wrong with, with sex within the, the, the confines of what God's Word has to say about in, in, in a marital relationship between a husband and a wife, because that's how marriage is defined, one man, one woman, for life. 
another message for another day. There's a lot of confusion about that one today. I don't understand. But there's nothing evil about drinking, sleeping, eating, or sex with one's spouse. But it's when the flesh nature begins to control those desires, that's when trouble comes into our lives. That's when sin makes its presence known. Hunger is not evil, but gluttony is a sin. Drinking is not evil, but drunkenness is wicked. Rest is is healthy and and good for, for the body. But laziness is shameful. Sex is God's precious gift given to a husband and wife. But when it goes beyond what God says, then, then sex then becomes wicked, perverse, immoral. So, so now you can begin to see how, how the world system operates. It, it appeals to our natural appetites, our natural desires, and it tempts us to to satisfy those desires in a manner in which that is contrary to the Word of God and to the will of the Father. And and so it begins with the lust of the flesh, and then there's the lust of the eyes. Our eyes are often the means by which sinful desires are introduced into the mind. I'm sure you've heard the expression before, eyes are the windows into the soul. Well, the reality of this is, is affirmed in the teachings of Jesus. He himself uh, kind of helps us to understand that when he equates adultery with just a lustful look. The text is found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 27 and 28. The Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, we have to be careful that we don't just limit the lust of the eyes to, we don't want to just limit that to sexual desires, because the the lust of the eyes can go beyond sexual desires. They can go uh, to to physical desires or or desiring or coveting something that belongs to someone else and doesn't belong to you. The lust of the eyes could be understood as the tendency to be captivated by appearance without giving consideration to the consequences. The tendency to be captivated by the appearance without giving uh, proper consideration to the consequences. Now, when I think about the lust of the eyes in Scripture, I think a beautiful example, unfortunately, that's given to us is it's contained within Joshua chapter 7. If you're familiar with Joshua at all, you'll know that Joshua chapter 7 is immediately following uh, the, the collapse of Jericho. And in Joshua chapter 6, uh, the people are given specific instructions that when Jericho is destroyed, that they're not to touch any of the spoils, they're not to, to take anything for themselves, anything that had a value. There are certain things that were to be presented to the temple of the Lord. The clear instructions were not to take anything for yourself. Leave it alone. It's not yours. Well, a man by the name of Achan through the lust of his eyes, coveted after something that didn't belong to him, with 
tendency to be captivated by appearance without considering the consequences. Achan secured for himself some of the things that were actually condemned. Look at what it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse number 21. His testimony was, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Here's the lust of the eyes being played out just right before us through Scripture. The lust of the, the tendency to be captivated by appearance without giving consideration to the consequence. He says, when I saw, he didn't give consideration. He didn't give consideration of the consequence of, of what would happen if he did what it was that he wanted to do. So without consulting the Word of God or the will of the Father, he saw without giving consideration to the consequences, and he took for himself. He coveted, and he took. And you might think, well, that's just one man. But that, that sin of the one man had a devastating effect. The nation lost the next war that it entered into. 36 soldiers were killed. And because of judgment executed upon Achan, he and his family were executed. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh. And then John says, the final trap, the, the boastful pride of life. He says, this pride, the pride of worldly possessions is an affront unto God. It leads to the glorification of oneself. And it reveals a failure to realize our complete and utter dependence upon God. Make you understand that pride, prestige, power, position, all of that counts for nothing in the kingdom of God. The value system of our world is turned upside down when God is the one that provides the evaluation. So you look back in verse number 17. John tells us that the world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. I think this is the heart of John's argument. The heart of John's argument now makes its appearance here. The things of this world seem to be of great value, but they are worthless when they are compared to the eternal blessings that come from doing the will of God. What this world has to offer, the best this world has to offer, pales in comparison to what our Lord extends unto us. There, there, there is no equal. So, so they may seem of great value, but they're worthless when they're compared to the eternal glory that awaits us in heaven. John now links our belief and our behavior yet again when he says the one who does the will of God lives forever. The idea of doing the will of God is closely linked to Jesus' mission of the gospel. Jesus, time and time again, was always saying how his desire, his purpose wasn't to do his own thing, he wasn't about doing his own agenda. 
he was focused with intense laser-like focus on fulfilling the will of God in his life. I'll show you some places in scripture. John chapter 4, verse number 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John chapter 5, verse number 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Just because I do not, I said, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then one more, John chapter 6, verse number 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John, again, is exhorting his readers. He's encouraging us to live our lives like Jesus. He's already told us those that claim to be in him, to love him, ought to walk as Jesus walked, to live in the manner in which Jesus lived. How did he live? How did he walk? He walked with the sole purpose of fulfilling the will of God in his life. He was, that was his laser-like focus. The will of God, may you know, the will of God is not some great mystery that's hard for you to discover. I can't tell you the countless conversations I've had with other people that have just been frustrated. I just want to know what God's will is. It's, it's not a big mystery. It's, the will of God is not something that we consult in our lives as though we're doing a Google search for something. Or that we occasionally visit Wikipedia so that we can gain some information. No, the will of God is something that controls and guides our lives. It should control us and it should guide us. The will of God is not a great mystery. I'll give you a secret. You want to know the will of God? Know the word of God. The will of God is given to us. The word of God is given to us. And part of it is so that it can reveal the will of God. So, if you're confused over the will of God, my challenge would be, you're probably not spending an adequate amount of time in the word of God. And when confronted with circumstances or situations in our lives, for the Christ follower... Our response is not just simply to say, is this good or is this bad? Or is this right or is this wrong? Or is this, well, is this good or is something better? Or no, or the key issue for the Christ follower is, is this the will of God? Is it the will of God? I'm convinced that believers can be distracted by many good things but those good things aren't the one thing that has the will of God is for our lives. And so our pursuit of multiple good things prevent us from faithfully executing God's perfect purpose and plan for our lives. Let me help you this morning. If you're struggling with how does one discover the will of God, let me give you a couple of things. Number one is, first and foremost, it begins with a complete surrender. A complete surrender. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Discovering the will of God begins with submission. We have to submit our lives, our own wills, our own personal agendas, and we allow Him to do the work through us. We, we recognize that our lives are a living worship service. Worship is not something that is just narrowly focused down to one hour, an hour and a half on a Sunday. We don't get to say, hey, I got my worship on, I'm good for the rest of the week. Worship is how we live our lives, who we are as Christ followers, that we should live with the awareness of, of giving consistent and, and appropriate glory and attention to the Father and not to ourselves. So discovering the will of God begins with us surrendering our hearts and life unto Jesus and then recognizing not only is He our Savior, He's our Lord. Lordship means that He controls, He guides, He leads, and we follow. So, so we give full rule and reign over our lives unto Him. So discovering the will of God begins with surrender. And then secondly, I said this before, God reveals His will through His Word. Psalm 119, 105. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's right there. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you don't have an appetite for the Word of God, if you don't have a hunger for, for just devouring His Word, if it's not interesting to you, if you're reading it and it's boring, and it's just, uh, oh, I gotta do that again, hear me. You need to check your relationship with the Father. You need to check yourself. I'm not saying one thing or another. Don't, don't read into what I'm saying. I'm just saying check your relationship. Make sure you have fully submitted and surrendered your life unto Him. Make sure you have repented, you've confessed from the sin that's in your life. Make sure you're turning control over who you are and what you do unto Him. The Word of God is beautiful. It is active. It is alive. And then it is extremely helpful for us in living. And for the spiritual believer, the one who spends time daily in the Word of God, who has an appropriate hunger for God's Word, in their reading of the Word of God, will begin to discover God's will. And not only will they discover the will of God, they'll embrace and accept and pursue that will in and through their lives. So it begins with surrender. And then the next key part is reading and knowing the Word of God. But I also want to very carefully introduce a third concept. I'll try to be clear on this one. But God reveals His will. He does reveal His will also through prayer and the working of His Spirit 
in our lives. So it begins with surrender, made known to us in his word, but then he'll also reveal his will through prayer and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as we pray about a decision, the Spirit of God may speak to us. That still small voice, that inner voice can give us insight and direction. Hear me. I can't be more clear than this. Never, ever, ever build your life or base your decision on that inner voice alone. Don't ever do it. We should never follow the inner voice alone. We must always test it with the Word of God. Never follow the inner voice alone. You can't just say, yeah, well, God spoke to me, and this is what he told me to do, and this is what I'm going to do, without ever verifying that speaking to you with the Word of God to make sure it is right. The one example I'll give, it happens all the time. All the time. Couples in a relationship together, not married, begin having sexual relationships with each other. Now they want to move in to one another. I actually had someone sit directly across from me with the person that they were living with told me I never do anything without praying about it first. I never make major decisions in my life without praying about it first. To which I asked them, so you prayed about moving in with your boyfriend and continuing to have sex with them. To which there was no answer. And the reality is, if that person prayed and that inner voice said, yes, move in, it makes sense for your situation, God understands you're married in his eyes, any of those excuses that people like to use, no, that's not what God said. Because that's contrary to his word. The will of God will never contradict the word of God. Never. So, when that inner voice speaks to you, be thankful, but be careful. Verify it with the Word of God, because it is very possible for that inner voice to be the voice of the adversary, of the voice, or, or the voice of our own flesh that's trying to lead us into doing something that's contrary to the Word of God. So God's will for your life will never contradict His Word. May you love His Word. May you know His Word. And then knowing the Word of God and rightly applying it to our lives, if we'll do that, then we will avoid the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's good news. So it all begins with surrender. So my question for you today, and we know church is done differently now. We don't have a time of invitation. We're trying to keep the distance. We don't want to get too close. As we dismiss you today, if you want to talk, if you want someone to pray with you, we're just going to ask that you just stay seated where you're at. Uh, I or someone else on the staff will come and we'll talk with you. We'll pray with you. and We'll encourage you. My question for you to consider today is, have you surrendered your life unto God? Recognizing that you, on your own, the best that you can do is woefully inadequate, never good enough. Have you properly confessed your sin, your need for a Savior, admitted 
that Christ is Lord, have you given your life unto Him? And then do you know His will for your life? If you're struggling with knowing what to do and how to do it, are you committing to spending time in His Word? Spending time praying about it. What's the one thing that you could do today that would help strengthen the relationship that you have with God and the, the relationship that you have with one another? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and for this church. God, I thank you for your word. God, help us to have a hunger and a desire for it. God, may every person that's here, that's watching, that's listening to this message, may we all have a, a, a hunger for, for radically chasing after your will for our lives. God, may we spend time in your word. And as we pray, may we be able to distinctly understand and know what that small voice might be saying. May we never make our decisions based upon that inner voice alone. May we always return to your word for validation. God, as we go forth from this place today, God, help us to see the needs that are all around us. And with great care and compassion, help us to respond to those needs. Not just in a physical manner, but God, as we respond to the needs that are around us, May we open our mouths and share the truth of your love for them. May we always seize the moment to share the gospel with other people. God, we thank you. We love you. We pray that we can continue to gather together in a less restrictive way. We'll do this as long as it's necessary. Father, you know our hearts, you know our desires, so God, give us patience in this process. And may you continue to be honored and glorified by who you see or what you see in us and how we proclaim your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hey, before we're dismissed, I've missed giving this to you over the past several weeks, so I want to close with a blessing. Just stay seated. I want to ask Joel to come on up, and he's going to give us some specific instructions as to how to leave the auditorium. So... I've been giving you the instructions last two weeks, and y'all don't like it when I give you these instructions. So now I'm going to let y'all not like Joel today. I'm going to share that with him. You're welcome. Hey, let's do this. May God bless you. God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will always be with you, so don't be afraid. Go, glorify God, and seek to make His glory known. Amen. Joel, it's all yours.